when we do another edition of this book, we're going to change the title and change the cover. And the title is going to be The Secret Beekeepers Don't Want You to Know. <laughs> I love it. It's just, I, I, think, it, 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 I think it'll just sell like hotcakes. Because, you know, it's like everybody's going to go, Beekeepers have a secret. And what is it? And then you gotta read the book and find out what it is. And then, and then on the cover, we're gonna have this. You've seen like on the nature programs, the uh, you know, the, the beekeeping white coveralls. We're gonna have this bay in white coveralls. And it's gonna be like unzipped down the front. So we've got some cleavage, and then she's holding a gun. And it's like, see, that way, you know, you, that's, that's, she's, she's, she's holding a gun because she doesn't want you to know the secret. <laughs> I take it from your laugh, you like it. <laughs> <laughs> that is good. You know, you, you, you design books. Yeah, I'll, I'll put you in contact with my publisher. I said I don't want to reflect on that image for a little while. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, I like it. I'm not going to think about it. Okay, the secret of the beekeeper is talking. No. It's okay, so I, I became a beekeeper and. Bees have their own personalities. Hives will have different personalities. Some of them are really nice, and some of them are really mean. And I would sometimes wear the uh, the suit, but a lot of times I wouldn't because it was it's really hot in summer, and so a lot of times I would just wear like cutoffs and a baseball cap and gloves. I ran about 300 hives for a while, and I might get stung eight times a day, something like that. Sometimes, like I remember once I popped the top on this one hive, and I wasn't I was wearing a baseball cap. And they've got smokers. You've seen those on the, the nature programs? They never work. They always go out when you need them. You put it in the back of your truck, you drive to the next site, you're, since you're driving along, the smoker actually starts working and it catches your, um, your bee suit on fire. And then, of course, when you need it, it's, it's like, it's nothing. So I was working with, with this, this friend of mine once. The bees, like, I opened the top on this one and it made this, this cartoon arrow straight at my head. And so I tell this friend of mine, grab the smoker. And she grabs the smoker and starts puffing air. On my, which just makes me even more mad. There's no smoke in the thing, of course. So it's like, I don't care, just light my hair on fire, it's <laughs> something. And then I, I end up running into the woods and rolling around. Like, and then, so, so sometimes they say, maybe it wasn't such a bad deal. You know, nobody actually knows this, but people say busy as a bee, that's crap. In their lingo bee research, bees spend most of their time in their lingo, loafing. We'll hang out in the cell and just hang. And bees can do different jobs, it's pretty cool. They, there's nurse bees, there's foragers, there's scouts, and they steal from each other all the time. There's guard bees that will walk back and forth on the front of the hive, and they smell everybody who comes in. If they smell like this hive, they can come in, or if they've got honey, they can come in. Otherwise, they won't let them in. And the males can go anywhere they want. Males is kind of cool. Males have a great lot. They don't do anything, and they just get to eat and go wherever they want. And there's only two drawbacks. One is that you get killed in the fall, which is kind of right. And the other one is that the only reason that, that drones hang around is when the queen flies out to mate, they, she flies up as fast and high as she can, and the drones will follow her. And then the drone who can fly the fastest and highest keeps, catches her and gets to mate with her. And the, 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 the drawback of that is when he mates with her, his genitals explode and dies. <laughs> it might not be a bad way to go, you know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is all getting, this is all getting the secret. No, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to get right at the edge of the secret, and there's going to be a beekeeper. Like, reach out. You're going to see someone with one of those the bee gloves. Reach out, and they're going to shoot me in the back. Like, oh, okay. The way they make a, uh, the way they make a new hive is by, is by 
making a queen. They make new queens by feeding them special food. 10,000, 20,000 bees in the hive. They'll make another queen, and then half the bees will take off somewhere else, and they'll land like in a tree or land wherever. And I'm sure you've seen that on the nature programs too. You'll see some beekeeper get in and get them all down. And the secret that beekeepers don't want you to know is that when bees swarm, they don't sting. This fact has been used by countless beekeepers to impress upon others their ostensible courage at virtually no risk. When I was staying with Glenn and Susan, they received numerous calls from around town requesting to pick up swarms. My friends were busy. I was always glad to go, in part because it meant a free bee colony, and part because it meant an opportunity to show off. I went once on a call to a motel at the main intersection of Modesto. It was near noon and hot. The street was crowded with cars, but no pedestrians went near the basketball-sized bundle of bees that hung from the branch of a waist-high bush. It should have taken me less than five minutes to pick up the swarm. I needed only to put a box beneath it, give the branch a hard shake, and dislodge the cluster, cover the box, and go. But as I approached, wearing cutoffs, no shirt, and baseball cap, and as the loose bees at the edge of the swarm started to fly around my head, people began lining the plate glass to the front of the motel's office. Traffic started to back up as drivers rubbernecked to see this death defying young man step into a cloud of crazy bees. I made it take a half an hour. <laughs> when I got back to my friend's house, Glenn asked what took so long. He said, There was a lot of people there. Smiling, he said, Showtime. <laughs> and twice though, I was stung collecting swarms. One time, see, they, they, since they're not going to sting when they when they swarm, they a lot of times go way up in trees for obviously they don't want to get eaten. So what I would do is I would shinny up the tree with a uh, canvas, big canvas bag tucked in the, the belt of my pants, and then I would get up there and then I would get a climb out of the branch and I would scrape them into the to the bag. And then for obvious reasons, I didn't want to put the opening of the bag inside my pants. And so I would clamp it between my teeth and I'd climb down. One time I bit on feet, bit here, there's stuff right here. Yeah. It's really hard to swear when you're holding back a piece. <laughs> and the other time that I got stung when I was doing this was really just unforgivably rude on my part. There were bees way up in a tree, like 60 feet up in a tree. The first branch was about 12 feet, so I put a ladder there, climbed up the ladder, climbed up the tree, realized they were too far out for me to reach. So I climbed back down, I attached two long pieces of wood to the, to, the, to the back, so I could hold it open like this, and then open and close it by opening and closing this piece of wood. And I climbed back up, and I realized that if I did this, holding the pieces of wood like this, I couldn't hold on to the tree. So I climbed back down and got some rope, to finally see where the story's going. And I tied myself to the tree, and I started scraping. Oh no, I'm sorry, I had three pieces of wood, because I had the two pieces of wood that were opening shut, I had another piece of wood to scrape, scrape them off the branch. So I'm doing this an hour and a half, and they're not cooperating. So finally I get an even worse idea, which is I'm going to saw off this limb, and then the bees will fall to the ground and break their cluster before they hit the ground, and I'll recluster somewhere that's easier for me to get. So I saw it off, and the, the, the branch falls about five feet, and lands on the next branch down. It's like, well, that's a drag. Mm -hmm. So I climb down, tie myself back in, start scraping again, and the bees, they've been flying around my head the whole time, just trying to figure out what is this jerk doing. And suddenly, in one moment, they went from looking at me to going, you know what, we don't usually sting when we swarm, but I think we'll make an exception. <laughs> and suddenly I had hundreds of bees in my hair, my mouth, on my nose, on my eyelids, and my ears. I started to climb down, and I realized I'm kind of a tree. So I just had this image of somebody coming over to my house six months later and seeing this skeleton on the tree going, 
don't get it. What's the story here? Fortunately, I've always been really bad at tying knots, so I, I push out from the tree as hard as I can, and I sort of shimmy out, and I push away from the tree and do a control fall, you know, just sort of slapping my arms and legs with all the branches on the way down, and then I hit the ground, roll, run into the house, and put my head under the, the, the water in the bathtub, and then I realized a really bad head. So what I realized about that is that it didn't take me long to realize what I'd done wrong. Wu Wei, which is a Chinese term meaning not doing. Not in terms of doing nothing, but in terms of not forcing. I attempted to force it. I was no longer working with the bees, helping them into a new home, but instead I was determined to capture these bees no matter their desires. And I was willing to saw perfectly good limb from the tree for no unselfish reason. No wonder the bees got mad. The tree was probably cheering them on. The whole incident seemed to me a tangible manifestation of the consequences of an unwillingness to listen, of disobeying fundamental rules of neighborly compliance, and on the bees' part, a reasonable resistance to insanity. I apologized to the swarm into the tree and let the swarm go wherever it wanted. So I'd like to read two short sections. These are two of my favorite sections of the book. If words alone could bring down our culture, I would write them. If actions by themselves would stop the atrocity, I would do it. If a change of heart would bring back the salmon, I would change my heart again and again and again. It is not enough at this point, necessary as they say, but not sufficient, to merely right ourselves from trauma, to dismantle the walls they so laboriously and necessarily constructed to constrict our broken hearts, and then try to pick up the shredded and scattered fragments of our experience to reassemble like a precious base that won't quite go back together no matter how we try or better, like the lifeless body of a loved one who was never coming back. The dog going blind with whom I traveled in my truck so many years ago eventually was hit by a train. Focused only on me and a friend farther along the way. She never knew what hit her, but merely tumbled off the tracks into the tall weeds by the side. I ran to her, found her, picked her up, and could not believe she was dead until I saw the gash and split her back to belly, white flesh that never had time to bleed. There was nothing I could do except hurl sobs at my stupidity blind dog for a walk on railroad tracks, and I wish that just this once I could go back to before, this time to right. In our case, too, seeing the mistake after it's done is not enough, nor is wishing it away, nor, especially in this case, is grief. When I took her for that walk, I found myself wandering far ahead of this ancient arthritic old <coughs> I worried about a train, but not over much, because we were in the midst of a long straightaway, at the farm of which, beyond the dog, was a tight curve. When I saw a train round this corner, I began to run toward the dog, not because I needed to run, but for the joy of running. Then I saw the train at more speed than I'd anticipated, and I ran faster than I ever had. And then I saw it tumble into space. What do you do? What do you feel? When you see destruction rushing down steel rails towards someone you love, and you see that nothing you can do will stop it. You may be a fast runner, but you cannot outrun a train. I have read that while every culture is invented in comedy, tragedies of unique invention of civilizations. A hero, doomed, stupid, blind to his own faults, falls inexorably toward a fate that neither comprehend nor avoid. I can try to make right those parts inside of me which have never been made wrong, and I can grieve losses both inside and out, and I can try for all my life to improve, improve my relationship with those around me, human and non-human alike. I can even accept that the oncoming train will most likely crush us rather continue to crush us, and will stop only the weight of our bodies and the gumming of its gears by our flesh. But I will not be alive. 
I know in my bones what it's like to sit stone-faced and frozen in the face of inevitable evil. I know in my flesh what it's like to lie down and take it. I know also what it's like to resist. I know that I'm no longer a child based on only the options of a child. I know that I'm now an adult. I know that at long last, it's time I begin to act like It's time for me to find that.